back in 2009 uh, to a, a lady... Uh, called Rachel Chandler and her husband Paul, uh, they set off on what they thought would be uh, the trip of a lifetime, uh, both keen sailors, and so they uh, went off in a yacht uh, sailing in the Indian Ocean. It sounds idyllic. Uh, and as they sailed from the Seychelles to uh, Tanzania, it sounds glorious, doesn't it, uh, doing that, uh, but that, that what was to be a trip of a lifetime turned sour very quickly uh, as their boat was, uh, yacht was boarded by Somali pirates and they were kidnapped and taken back to mainland Somalia and were stuck there for 13 months. Well, it fell to Rachel's brother, Stephen Collett, uh, the difficult job, fiendishly difficult job of finding them, negotiating, raising and then paying their ransom. Very difficult. Um, He had, in many ways, to answer one of life's big questions in doing that. How much is someone's life worth? He had to answer that question. Um, Now, again, as we thought last week, science could have helped Stephen, couldn't it? Science could have helped Stephen. How much is someone worth? Well, one answer to that question could be you add up the value of all your component chemicals in your body. That is one answer to that question, isn't it? So there's there's over 30 liters of water in a human body. Uh, I'm told on average there's enough salt in your body to fill a small salt shaker. Uh, There's enough fat in the average human body for about seven bars of soap on average. So if you're Robbie a few minutes ago, you know, much less than that. Five. Me, near ten, really. Okay, so there's there's enough phosphorus in your body uh, to make 1,200 matches. There's enough lead in your body to make 9,000 lead pencils. Um, There's enough calcium in your body to make a decent-sized box of chalk. You get the idea. You get the idea. Lots of minerals and uh, vitamins that are pretty rare. But on average, if you've got all your component chemicals that make up you, and you go to uh, a chemical supplier, how much do you think the human body physically is worth? Anyone want to guess? Thirty-six pounds. Anyone go for more than that? Anyone go for less than that? On average, on today's prices, I'm told I'm not an again I'm no chemist, no expert. About seventy-five quid, right? Seventy-five pounds for the price of a human body, right? I think I think it's fair to say we all feel that that something's wrong there. If that's all you think a human life is worth. Think for a moment of someone you love who was in danger, like Stephen Collett. Wouldn't you give everything if it would guarantee their protection? Or even worse, maybe even more acutely, you've lost someone you love. Wouldn't you give everything you have to have them back again, wouldn't you? I think we all recognize that science gives an adequate answer. It gives an answer, but it doesn't give 
uh, or it gives an accurate answer, but it doesn't give an adequate answer, does it? We instinctively know that human life uh, is worth more than that. In the end, Stephen Collett ended up paying uh, £500,000 to those Somali pirates, uh, but it did guarantee the safe return of Rachel, his sister, and her husband, Paul. How much is a life worth? What value, more personally, what value do I have? I think these are crucial questions for us. It's a crucial question for us as an individual to have any assessment of our uh, self-worth and uh, sense of identity. We need to know we're of value, don't we? But it's also crucial for us as, as, in, uh, as a society. Uh, we need to have an answer to these questions. How much is a life worth? What does it mean to be human? Uh, if we're going to work out the answer to all the big questions that we're, we're asking politically, uh, questions of immigration, of education, of social benefit, housing, if you're going to have an answer to any of those big issues, then you need to have an answer to these prior questions. What does it mean to be human? And do we have any value? Science can get you some way to answer those questions, but I want to suggest that the Bible gives a fuller, more adequate more accurate answer. And that's what we see here uh, in these two chapters, Genesis 1 uh, and 2. We see here what God has to say about the value of a human life. And so if you were to ask God, what am I worth? What am I worth? You would receive the answer back, you're very precious and special to me. That's the affirming answer that you would get. But also you get the challenging answer that the person sitting next to you is incredibly valuable and precious to God. And that's going to shape our attitude towards them. That's going to shape uh, our attitude towards ethics. Two reasons in this chapter why we see that human life is incredibly precious, incredibly valuable to God and should be to us. First reason, our design, our design, the intention of God, the intention of God. And then second, our distinctiveness, the image of God. Two reasons then why human life is valuable. First, uh, our design, the intention uh, of God. Now, if you are a follower of strict, very strict Darwinian evolution, uh, if that is your story for how we got here, uh, then really we are nothing as human beings but the product, the result of impersonal forces, time plus chance. That's it. We are just the product. We are accidents. Accidents, or here's... Uh, Professor Stephen Gould at uh, Harvard University, he said this. If the history of life teaches us any lesson, it is that human beings arose as a kind of glorious accident. Surely the kind of glorious cosmic accident resulting from the cantonation or the linking of thousands of improbable events. Okay, what's he saying? He's saying, number one, you're here by a fluke, right? You're about to be fertilizer, 
and in between, your life is futile. There you go. There's, there is the story of you. Here by fluke, about to be fertilizer, and in between is a fluke, or in, it's futile. Is that, is that all there is? Is that all there is to life? Again, I want to suggest to you that the Bible gives a, a radically different answer to that. It profoundly disagrees. God profoundly disagrees with that. We are more than just the product of impersonal forces plus time plus chance. Just look again at Genesis 1 verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. The Bible says we're not an accident. We are the deliberate creation designed and made by a personal God. That's who you are. Designed and made by a personal God. Now, we touched on this last week. Um, Oceans of ink has been spilt on trying to correctly interpret Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. Especially within the Christian world, those who take the Bible seriously have wrestled with how to interpret uh, these, uh, these verses. Some on one side of the spectrum have read these verses as a literal historical narrative. That's how you're supposed to be, how you're supposed to read those. When you read that God took a rib out of Adam, he really did, and he made uh, Adam's wife Eve. Others at the other end of the spectrum see these chapters, particularly chapter 1, as more on the poetic side uh, of uh, the literary genre question. Uh, what type of literature is it? It's, it's poetic, it's symbolic, and we're not meant to take all the details literally. And so there's loads of Christians out there, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians, uh, who would read this account and see no contradiction with um, evolution, that God chose a particular couple of hominids uh, that he then breathed life into in a, and created spiritual beings Uh, Now, I don't know where you stand uh, on those spectrum. Those are important questions uh, for us to answer at some point. Uh, I don't know where you stand. Personally, just to put my cards on the table, I I take quite a conservative view, to be honest. Uh, I see see some very big problems with the idea of macro-evolution. You can talk to me after about what I think those are. Um, And so I read this account as a special personal creation of mankind. Now, again, you're free to discuss that, but but wherever you land on the spectrum, we mustn't admit the crucial, clear point is that we are not here by accident. Whatever process God chooses to use, we are not here by accident. We are here by his deliberate design, deliberate design. And one of the ways that God designed us um, is that he designed us to be physical, to be physical. Uh, Just look at chapter 2, verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. God made the first man out of the material stuff of the ground and created uh, life and breath in him. 
we see even from that first description uh, of mankind, humanity, we see that God cares and is interested in the physical. He's interested in the physical. Uh, God designed us to be whole people, uh, body, mind, and soul together. Now, there's lots of religions and philosophies out in the world that downplay the physical, um, certainly from the East, uh, religions, some, some forms of Buddhism, uh, those are Hare Krishnas and so on, they would, they would see that salvation is the release of the spirit from the prison of the body so that it can float around in nothingness. That is, that is the goal, the aim, the salvation that we can look forward to. The Bible is radically different from that. The Bible sees that physicality is good, is good. Uh, in fact, in chapter 2, we see when God makes a physical world and puts the, the man and the woman in the garden, God can say that not, it's not just good, it's very good. It's very good. And in fact, salvation for a Christian, when you get to the other end of the Bible story, what is the future hope that we have to look forward to? It's not being a disembodied soul, a spirit floating around in nothingness. No, no, no. The, the goal is that we would have spirit and mind and body all reunited in a, a resurrected body, in a physical new creation where we will run and we will sing and we will paint and we will jump and we will swim and we'll do all those things. Physicality is a good thing. And I think that has incredible implications for our ethics as well, for how we answer what we ought to do questions. Because, uh, because God cares and is interested uh, in the physical, that means God cares about what you do with your body. Paul, for example, St. Paul, when he talks to the church in Rome uh, and instructing them about their worship, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he can say, Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. God cares about what you look at with your eyes. He cares about where you go with your feet. He cares about what you touch with your hands, how you use your tongue. He cares what you do with your body. It matters. It matters. But what I want us to see, why are human beings valuable and important? Because of our design. We are here by the personal intention of God. That's the first reason why a human life is incredibly valuable. The second reason then why a human life is incredibly valuable is not just our design, but our distinctiveness, the image of God. We are made in the image of God. The English uh, zoologist uh, Desmond Morris uh, wrote a very famous book uh, a number of years ago uh, called The Naked Ape, The Naked Ape. And at the very beginning of his book, he says this. There are 193 living species of monkeys and apes. 192 of them are covered with hair. The exception is the naked ape, the self-named Homo sapien. Or, as Arthur Sullivan famously put it, Darwinian man, the well-behaved is at best 
only a monkey shaved. Okay, so what do you think? Now, obviously, I'm a bit hairier than most of you, uh, so maybe I'm closer on the spectrum, according to Mr. Morris. But, but do you see the point? Do you see the point? That we're not all that different. We're just another species of monkey. That's just all we are. We're just a little bit, maybe a little bit better developed, but we're, the difference is not a difference of kind. It's just a difference of degree. That's it. We're just animals. Some have suggested maybe a better parallel is not that we're animals, but maybe the better parallel is that we are machines. We are machines, DNA reproducing machines. That's all we are. Um, And so uh, Richard Dawkins uh, says this, for example, we are survival machines, robot vehicles blindly programmed to preserve selfish molecules known as genes. Okay. You see their answer? What, what value do we have? No more value than any other animal. And in fact, we are just the machines that reproduce a selfish gene. That's it. That's all we are. That's a very, very cynical, low view of humanity, isn't it? Uh, but again, the Bible challenges that view. Uh, and while, look, there may be all sorts of parallels between us physically, chemically, even in terms of our DNA uh, to animals, we are of the category mammal, okay? So there are parallels. There are parallels between the working of a human brain and the working of a computer, neural networks and all those things. There's, there really are parallels. But surely we want to say there's a significant, profound difference between what it means to be human and what it means to be an animal or a computer Again, the Bible, Genesis uh, 1 here, is profoundly helpful. Let me just read again. Genesis 1, verses 26 uh, and 27. And God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now again, if you start reading Bible commentators, what does it mean to be the image of God is profoundly debated. It's profoundly debated. Um, It clearly doesn't mean that we look like God. The Bible is very clear. God is not limited to a physical body. If you want to think about that, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago in our Incomparable series. God is omnipresent. He's not limited to one body. So it's not like uh, when uh, someone stops uh, a mum with a pram along the street and looks at the little baby boy and says, Ah, he's the image of his dad, Right? That's not the kind of image we're talking about here. We do not look like God. And so others have suggested maybe it's that um, we are rational, we're able to think, we are moral, we're able to choose, we're social, uh, we're able to love, uh, or it's that we're spiritual, we're able to pray. And look, again, we need to be very careful what we mean by the image of God Uh, to say only what the Bible says and no more. Uh, The danger with some of those definitions of what it means to be made in the image of God 
is that actually we see some of those things, some of those things in the animal kingdom. And so if that's your definition of what it means to be made in the image of God, you may run into problems. The Bible never defines what it means to be made in the image of God. But in this passage, it describes what it looks like to be made in the image of God. Uh, And I want to suggest there are three aspects, three angles to what it means to be made in the image of God. We've read one of them. First one is that we are created to rule. We are created to rule. So as soon as God expresses his intention to make man in his own image, immediately uh, we read that he created him, verse 26, to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over all the earth, and over the creatures that move along the ground. In chapter 1, the the writer of Genesis, who I believe is Moses, uh, because Jesus says so, um, Moses describes God as the king, the one who makes, owns, rules, names, places, everything. He's the one completely in charge of this world. And as you read on in the Bible story, you will see God is described as ultimately the king and the ruler of this world. He is the one uh, who marks off the boundary for the sea. He is the one who sustains the dancing of every atom. He is the one who controls the weather systems and sets up every ecosystem on the planet. God is the ruler. He is in charge. But what we see here is that God, although he is the ultimate king, he delegates authority to human beings to be rulers under him. A parallel might be uh, back in uh, at the height of the British Empire when Queen Victoria was also the empress of India. She was also the empress of India. Now that didn't mean that she moved to India. No, no, she stayed, Buckingham Palace in London. But what she did was she sent a representative to India, the viceroy, the vice-regent, to rule and represent her interests in India on her behalf. He was called to rule under her. And that's what we're seeing here. God has given human beings the, the unique and the delegated authority to rearrange the the resources of this world in order to maximize all the untapped potential we see to bring more order out of chaos. God is permitting us to do that, uh, to cultivate and care. We'll be thinking about that next week, uh, how we think about the planet. Uh, But God has given human beings this unique authority to look after, care for, nurture the world. And so while there's all sorts of parallels chemically between us and the other animal creatures, we are distinctive in God's world by being delegated this authority to rule over and represent God's interests in the world. We are made to rule And we see that even in the order in which human beings are made, where human beings are made on the sixth day, the final thing that God makes, the pinnacle of his creation. We are made to rule. That's the first aspect of what it means to be made in the image of God, 
to rule this world, to maximize the potential of it and bring order out of chaos. Second thing is that we're made to relate. We're made to relate. When God comes and um, expresses his intention to make man, he says something that's really intriguing right on the second page of the Bible story. Um, He says this, let us make man in our image. Now, who is God talking to? Who is God talking to? Is he talking to the angels? Well, there is nowhere in the rest of the whole of the Bible that you have any even hint that we are made in the image of angels. In fact, quite the opposite. We're told later that we will have a position of greater rule and authority than the angels. So who is God talking to? And again, it's just a hint at the very, very beginning that God is complex. God is complex. That God is relational and has always, from all eternity, always been in a loving relationship. As, as we, the, the New Testament explains, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. Now, I know there's great mystery here. There's great mystery. But what we get, this is the first hint uh, of this great mystery that we see here. But it's really important that we understand that God is always been relational, always been in a loving relationship with three per- between three persons. And so to be made in the image of God then means that we are made to, like him, relate We're made to relate. That's why we know, for example, that solitary confinement is such a cruel punishment. Because it takes away the natural instinct we have to relate to others. And I guess the first thing that we need to see is that we are made to relate first and foremost to God. And so when God makes the man and the woman, what does he do first? What does he do first? He speaks to them. He speaks to them. He doesn't do that with any of the birds, any of the animals, any of the sea creatures. We have a unique, wonderful privilege of being invited into a relationship with the Creator God. And one of the great tragedies of the 20th century, 21st century, uh, I suppose we're we're in the 21st century, uh, one of the great tragedies of today Uh, is that so many, many people live their lives with their eyes pointed downwards. So many people live with their eyes pointed downwards at the here and the now, focused on getting their own career going, focused on finding that special someone, focused on having a family and providing for their family, and that's it. That's it. But if that is all there is to life, is the here and now and providing for you and yours, then really what makes us any different to the chimps or the sea lions or the whales? Nothing. No, we are distinctive. We are made with a basic longing and need to relate to God. And so famously, Francis Schaeffer says this, man's basic relationship is upward rather than downward or horizontal. 
He is created to relate to God in a way that, n- that none of the other creatures uh, are. We are made for relationship. We have this longing inside us for something more, a connection with God, with the transcendent. And so even someone who is a hard-nosed atheist, uh, like Jean-Paul Sartre, the famous French philosopher, he can say this, that God does not exist, I cannot deny, but that my whole being cries out for God, I cannot forget. I think he's remarkably honest there. If you live your life focused on just the physical, focused on just the horizontal, there will be a longing in your soul that you will never satisfy. You can try to fill it. You can try to fill it with money, sex, and power. You can try that, and it'll distract you for a while, but it'll never satisfy. It'll never satisfy. And I think there's quite a lot of us in this room who would completely agree with that. We are made to rule. We're created to rule. We're created to relate. And then thirdly, we're created to respect one another. To respect one another. Because if we see one another as having great dignity, uh, made in the image of God, that is going to profoundly affect how we relate to one another. I guess personally, if you are someone this morning who suffers from low self-esteem, I know there's there's quite a few of us who struggle in that way. Perhaps you have been spoken down to, uh, you have been dismissed or ignored in your family, in your workplace, in your friendship group. Um, I think this is an incredibly affirming thing for you to hear. You're incredibly valuable. You have great dignity and worth. Uh, I came across this quote uh, by an African-American who's the subject of horrible racist abuse in the past. Uh, And he was reminded by another Christian of this very point that he was made in the image of God. And here's what he said after that penny finally dropped for him. He said this, I'm me, I'm good, because God don't make no junk. Now, you may quibble with the grammar, right? You might quibble with the grammar, but you can't quibble with the theology. He's right. I'm me, and I'm good, because God don't make no junk. I think we need to shape our understanding of ourselves, reshape our understanding of ourselves as we read this passage. But, of course, we must reshape our understanding and our attitude towards other people. This is where it gets more difficult for some of us um, by um, what we read here. And this, this idea of being made in the image of God pops up again after the fall. So human beings will, if you read on in the chapter 3, rebel against God, fall from their state of, of grace and privilege, and are kicked out of the garden. Their relationship with God, each other, and the world is all interrupted and all distorted. And yet, this aspect that we are made in the image of God may be distorted, but it is not removed. It is not removed. And so, by the time you get to Genesis chapter 9, uh, just after the story of the, of the flood, this is well after Adam and Eve and their rebellion. 
Uh, In Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, we read this. Whoever sheds the blood of a human being, by human beings shall his blood be shed. For he is made in the image of God. Get the idea? Why should you, why is the unsanctioned taking of life a bad thing? It's a bad thing because that person is made, maybe they don't reflect it as clearly as they could and should, but that person is made in the image of God. Made in the image of God. And so to disrespect, to do violence to another person, is in turn to do violence to God. I think this idea that we have made, we're made in the image of God with incredible value and dignity has profound implications. First, for some of the sanctity of life questions that we're wrestling with right here in Northern Ireland at the minute. Of course, since the referendum down in the Republic, uh, one of the big pressures that has come on uh, Northern Ireland is to change abortion law. Um, We have, in my view, wonderfully creative and compassionate legislation already in place in Northern Ireland that does two things really well. Number one, it protects the life of the most vulnerable in our society, unborn children. But it also, and this is what often gets confused in the rhetoric, it also has wonderful provision for the health and the well-being of a mother already built into it. Uh, What we have is really good legislation uh, already. A couple of surveys were done in in the mainland UK uh, just a couple of years ago that asked the question, how many um, abortions do you think happen every year in the UK? And everyone, 100% of people who were asked that question, estimated too low. The average answer was about 50,000, when in actual fact, last year, there were over 200,000 abortions that happened on mainland UK. Uh, Since 1967 in the Abortion Act, there have been, um, let me just check, over 7 million abortions. The vast, vast majority of those were not for medical reasons, but purely for social reasons. What we have in the UK, mainland UK, the, the legislation that we've been pushed towards is effectively abortion on demand. I think for every stable society, for every stable society, we recognize that the limit, there there must be some limits put on the freedom of some people for the protection of other citizens. I think we all recognize that in other areas, don't we? We recognize that in terms of theft, in terms of taxes, in terms of littering. Very basic examples, we recognize actually it's, it's a good thing to constrain some freedom for the protection of others. And yet in this one area, in this area of abortion, the, the rhetoric of uh, a woman's choice, and it's my body, I can do what I want with it, has actually led to 
the death of millions of unborn children. One inescapable application of this is that this should not be so. Those little babies with their own unique fingerprints and nails and DNA have a right to life because they are precious and valuable in the sight of God. But the same logic, and here's the really worrying thing, uh, is that the same logic is being used increasingly in the States and even recently in the UK to push for not just abortion, but infanticide, the killing of children that are already born. And so if you listen to someone who's the professor, professor of bioethics uh, at Harvard Uni- or Princeton University, uh, Peter Singer, it's a scary view of the world. So he strongly argues that if a child is born and is disabled because of the distress that that brings on their parents and the drain that that has on society, they should have the right to kill that child painlessly. And I guess my challenge for those who hold that view, uh, or for you as well, is if we are nothing more, if we are nothing more than just a collection of chemicals, a bunch of molecules, and some nerve cells, if that's all that we are, then how would you argue against Peter Singer? I don't think you can. I don't think you can. But that's not just the only controversial topic. You may want to challenge me on something I've said there, but uh, that's not the only controversial topic. The other one is euthanasia. You start to watch our dramas at the moment on, on TV, and you'll see the noble death, the compassionate act of taking away the suffering of someone who's a, who is lingering at, the, at the, the cusp of death, being a noble thing to do. It's popping up again and again all over the place. What we have increasingly in our society is the idea that euthanasia is a good and a noble thing to do. And so there's increasing pressure uh, on our MPs, uh, on our legal system to legalize uh, euthanasia. But again, we need to think about this biblically. We need to think about this wisely. Of course, as we see someone suffering, we would want their suffering to be relieved. You'd be very heartless not to. But it... To legalize euthanasia brings all sorts of incredible difficulties. Number one, I think it brings this idea that it, it, it leaves those who are the most vulnerable, terminally ill, susceptible of being manipulated by those who are most likely to financially benefit from their death. That should cause you caution if I stopped right there. Second, I think it it, it creates a profound problem in the patient-doctor relationship. We think of our doctors who are those there to to heal and to nurture and to, to provide pain relief for us. But how would your relationship with your doctor change if that doctor could also be your potential killer? Inevitably, it'll change your relationship uh, with your doctor. And again, we have made wonderful advances in palliative care and pain relief. And if we legalize euthanasia, 
what we'll do is we'll actually reduce any further and eliminate possibly any further advance in palliative care. I think there's just so many problems with euthanasia that we should steer clear. We should steer clear. And the big reason is that human being and the life of a human being is of incredible value. It's incredibly precious because we are all made in the image of God. But even in less controversial terms, this should change how we relate to other people, shouldn't it? Um, It should change how you relate to people you rub shoulders with. How should you relate to the person who serves you in Tesco's? As just an extension of that till that's there to serve you. The person who serves you in a restaurant. Perhaps even more, I'll confess my struggle here. Perhaps the person who cold calls you at mealtime on a Wednesday, right? How should you treat that person? Should you not treat everyone who's made in the image of God with dignity and respect? They are not a robot there to serve you. They are a person. Make eye contact. Say thank you. Ask personal questions. Show that you're interested. It should change the way you leave a room. This is, I've been thinking about this this morning. You should leave the way you le- change the way you leave a room. So when you leave a room at home or here in the church, do you just drop everything at your backside and walk out the door, expecting that some other servant will come along and tidy up for you after? No, no. More than that, of course, more broadly, there is no room in if we understand that human beings are made in the image of God, there's absolutely no wiggle room whatsoever for sexism, for racism, for snobbery of any kind, for homophobia. Every single human being we encounter, from king to cleaner, prime minister um, uh, to prisoner, judge to janitor, demands our respect every single one because we are all made in the image of God just as we close I want to turn over to Hebrews uh, the book of Hebrews Uh, and in Hebrews chapter 2 I think some of the words will appear on the screen behind me Hebrews chapter 2 we see the writer of the Hebrews reflecting on this idea that we are made in the image of God Uh, he quotes Uh, from Psalm 8. He's reflecting on the wonderful privilege that we have as made in the image of God. Uh, He he quotes from Psalm 8, and he said, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. We have this wonderful privilege of ruling this world, relating to God, Uh, as equals with dignity and respect. What a wonderful vision we have of what it means to be a human being. And yet, as he looks around the world, he lifts his eyes from Psalm 8 and glances around. What does he see? Verse 8. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that was not subject to him. Yet, 
At present, we do not see everything subject to him. See, the reality is that we have all failed to reflect the, the image of God. We have all failed to rule. We failed to, to rule this world. In fact, we selfishly exploit it rather than care and cultivate it. We, we, we fail to, to rule ourselves and our own selfish passions. We have failed, and we fail to relate to God. And so we abuse this world. We hurt other people around us, often those we claim to love the most, and we fail to relate to God as our creator and our king. What's to be done? We've been given this wonderful privilege, but we have twisted it. We've distorted God's image. Verse 9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. There was one man, there was one man who perfectly reflected the image of God in the way he respected all those around him, in the way that he perfectly related to God. And yet he went to the cross, not because of any offense he had ever uh, committed, but he went to the cross for everyone, for everyone who will come to him and humbly confess, humbly admit, look, we've got it wrong. We have failed in our privileges. We have failed in our responsibilities. We have hurt other people. We have offended God. If we admit our guilt and if we believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be and that everything on the cross necessary for us to be forgiven and we commit our lives to him, what's the promise? The promise is that we can be reconciled to God, reconnected in our relationship to God and that the image of God will begin to be restored in us more and more every day. That is the wonderful promise that we have. Genesis 1 and 2 reminds us that we are made in the image of God, uh, made with responsibility to rule, to relate to God in the proper way, uh, and to respect other people. We have all ruined that privilege, every single one of us here, without exception. And yet, as we get to the end of the Bible story, we see that there's this wonderful promise that for even the likes of you and me, we can be forgiven and we can be restored. We're going to take just a minute just to confess some of the ways that we have distorted the image of God. And then we're going to take communion together uh, as we thank God for the wonderful rescue that he's provided for us in Christ Jesus. Let's just bow our heads and our hearts just for a moment.